Welcome to Scrum Dynamics, episode 19. Hey there, and welcome to Scrum Dynamics, the podcast that's on a mission to ensure that every Microsoft customer and partner can use the Scrum framework to successfully implement Dynamics 365. I'm your co-host, Neil Benson, and I'm joined once again by Dermot Ryan for an episode focusing on team dynamics in Scrum projects. We dig into big teams and small teams, co-located teams and remote teams, teams where the product owner wants to be the scrum master, and teams with too many product owners. A lot of the questions in this episode came from listeners just like you. If you'd like to ask a question, visit customary.com, that's the word customer, with a Y on the end, .com, and click on the send voicemail button, and your question will appear on the show. In fact, if you'd like to appear on the show for a whole show, I'd love to chat with you if you're another Dynamics professional that's tried using Scrum. Perhaps you're an expert in managing Scrum using Azure DevOps or an ERP project with Dynamics 365 Finance and Operations. Whether your Scrum project went like a dream or was a bit of a nightmare, I'd love to help you share your experience on a future episode. You know what you have to do. Visit customary.com and click on the send voicemail button and we can take it from there. But just before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to Kingsway Soft and thank them for sponsoring this episode of Scrum Dynamics. Kingsway Soft is a leading integration solution provider offering software solutions that make data integration affordable and painlessly easy. Thousands of enterprise clients from over 80 countries and regions rely on Kingsway Soft to integrate data with various business systems in order to drive their business efficiency and fully leverage their information assets. Kingsway Soft now works with CDS and Power Apps. Kingsway Soft is a leading provider of Microsoft Dynamics integration software, including Dynamics 365, CRM, AX, NAV, GP, SL, as well as many other applications. Find out more at kingswaysoft.com. Hi, Dermot, how are you? I'm great, Neil. How are you? I'm fantastic, thanks. I, uh, I was a little bit late recording our session this evening. I was at work building a presentation for next week's user group meeting. And of course, you know me, if it's a presentation, there's lots of uh, Lego images involved. So I got distracted and a bit carried away and a little bit late coming home. And then to find my studio with my kids in it, they're addicted to Lego as well. So they won't leave. They want to build more Lego. So right. I had to kick them out and uh, I get on the get on the call with you. So how are you kick doing? Them out. I'd say you got down on your hands and knees and built some Lego pieces with them. <laughs> before Honestly, them no, out. that's not why I'm running late at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm great, thanks. Um, all good here. The project's... I'm working on or still motoring along and I'll be finishing up shortly with CBA. I'm moving to another bank as an agile coach. So it'll be a change in direction. I've been used to being a scrum master for several teams and now I'll be coaching more at the organizational level and how we can uplift the ways of working across agile. So it's really interesting. Well, it's just as well you're nice and fit, Dermot, because it's a steep set of stairs up to that ivory tower. Yes, so, um... it is. <laughs> well, I'm well grounded, Neil. <laughs> yeah, good. No, you'll you'll be a breath of fresh air in that role, Dermot. So good luck to you on that. Thanks, Neil. And congratulations. Appreciate it. Thanks. So we've had a, a caller call in, and Todd Mercer uh, from Canada has called in with the following question. Hey, Neil. It's Todd Mercer with MD Financial Management in Ottawa, Canada. I had a couple of questions that I'd like to pose to you and Dermot to uh, debate on the podcast. One would be, what do you guys do to continue to motivate and keep a team operating at peak capacity for a project that runs over a long period of time? So, you know, you think about a team that is running maybe in maintenance mode for a platform versus depending a project that kind of has a start and end cycle. The second question would be on for enterprises that have 
may not be able to afford a resource to be a dedicated product owner or a dedicated scrum master. What roles do you see that pair up with those kind of roles on a part-time basis very well in terms of like a scrum master or as a developer or a product owner that's a dev manager or a QA analyst that's a scrum master, so to speak. So I'm curious what you guys think in terms of which roles pair up well with a scrum master or a product owner in a traditional sense. Thanks. Keep the podcast going. It's great. So, Dermot, what do you reckon to Todd's question? Right. So, Todd's question is, what roles in Scrum can be combined? Well, it's a good question because we often see teams that aren't fully formed. They may not have a product owner in place or a Scrum master in place. And sometimes the budget just won't stretch that you can have a full-time product owner or a full-time Scrum master. So, if we start with the two roles that they're talking about, really, which is product owner and Scrum master. Um, the product owner can delegate their work, but they remain accountable. So what I've seen sometimes is that the BA will step in for a product owner. Mm-hmm. Um, so if a product owner is off busy on other things, they may delegate to a BA so they can be their representative on a team. That works okay, but so long as you understand that the, the product owner is ultimately responsible. So then I think Todd, what Todd's alluding to is what if you don't have the budget for a full-time product owner and they're going to be a dev person or a scrum master. Yeah, That's very hard. I see that, uh, especially product owner who is also a scrum master. That's really a conflict of interest because you may have the situation where the product owner doesn't respect the scrum framework. Uh, Mid sprint wants to change the goals and wants to almost intimidate some devs to doing work for them on the side. It does happen. It's like a conflict of interest when the product owner is the scrum master. But what I tend to see more is that the product owner may be spread across several teams and then they may delegate their work. And sometimes that delegation goes to a BA or to an area product owner. So with the product owner role, it's very hard to take someone else who like a developer or a scrum master and ask them to do that. What do you think, Neil? Have you seen that happen before? Yeah, I completely agree. I would always keep those two roles separate, the product owner and the scrum master. Um, they have completely different interests. And like you said, it's conflict of interest if you try and combine the roles. Frida, our old client, she used to say that it's a bit like the triangle of building a house. So you've got the, the homeowner, the architect, and the, the builder. So the builder is the development team. The homeowner is the product owner. And the architect is the scrum master. And when you're building a house two of those parties will always resent the other one. There's always somebody at fault mm. in a particular part of the project and uh, the homeowner and the architect gang up on the builder or the builder and the architect think the homeowner's crazy. And that's a natural tension that works really well um, when you're building a house. And the same goes for, for building software. That, that is a natural tension and needs to exist. You can't combine the architect and the builder role and things will begin to fall apart if you do that. Mm. So that's the product owner role. It's good to see that we're on the same page there, Neil. (laughs) We don't always agree, but we totally agree on that one. But when it comes to a scrum master, I have seen the scrum master also be a member of the dev team. While not ideal, it does work. As long as you have a good scrum master who understands that they may need to visually or to put on a scrum master hat and then take that off when they're becoming a dev person. That does work. In fact, I've done it myself. I I used to be a consultant slash developer, and also I was filling in as a scrum master when I first started out on my journey with Agile. So while not ideal, it does work. Um, So have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen it happen. I've never been a part of a team that where I've done that. But one of the challenges I could imagine that would come up then is 
what is your capacity as a developer if you're also doing the Scrum Master duties? And how can the team then forecast their velocity when they're not sure how much time you're going to be able to, to devote to development versus the Scrum Master duties you've got? Mm. So when we go back to velocity, we, if in our last podcast on metrics, we covered this quite a bit. I tend to look at, yes, the capacity coming in, but with your velocity, if you did 100 points last sprint, in this sprint, all things being equal, you have the same number of people, nobody's taken leave, then it's reasonable to assume you can do 100 points this sprint. Right. So if your scrum master was spending 50% of their time, or this individual was spending 50% of their time as a scrum master and 50% as a developer, if your velocity over the last three sprints was coming in at 100 points, then there's no reason for that to change in future sprints. Yeah, okay. So you can take your velocity that way. So it doesn't matter how much time the, the person is spending as a scrum master, as a developer, it should balance out over a couple of sprints. And that yeah, way as long as it's fairly constant. Yeah, it's pretty constant. Um, yeah. It is a little bit, it is more difficult when you're a developer to also be a scrum master and vice versa. But in the real world, we see, especially with smaller organizations, they can't afford to have someone as a full-time scrum master. And yep. also what I've seen with teams as they mature, and really take on ownership of the ceremonies themselves, they don't need the scrum master as much. The scrum master can be there as a coach, as a, a light touch coach, but they, when they run the ceremonies themselves, the scrum master can step back quite a bit and work with different teams. So that's what I see as teams mature as well. Yeah, and particularly if you're if you're looking at uh, reducing your budget, then sharing a Scrum Master between multiple teams can work really well. So if you're a Microsoft partner, for example, and you're delivering multiple projects for, for Agile clients, then you can share a Scrum Master across multiple delivery teams if they have some level of maturity with Scrum. Or if you're a Microsoft customer organization deploying Dynamics, then you might share a Scrum Master with your Dynamics team as well as maybe another team as well. And Dermot, you've got great experience managing multiple Scrum teams at once. So I'm sure you've got lots of experience there. Yeah. So at the moment, I've got two teams that I work directly with. And then I'm also involved with coaching the leadership team at the organization that I work with. And I help out in some other teams as well. It's quite hard when teams are forming initially because you really want to focus on the one team that's forming and when they get to a certain level of maturity then you can start spreading yourself across two and three and sometimes four teams right and there is a whole process around that as well you've got different scaling that's called scaling scrum you've got less which is large-scale scrum and then for really big enterprises they use what's called safe which is scaled agile framework and there are certain other flavors out there as well like nexus which comes from scrum.org so there's a lot of flavors of scaling scrum out there and it's not unusual at all for a scrum master to be spread across two three and sometimes four teams yeah, good so the second part of todd's question was how to keep team members engaged on long-running scrum projects especially if you're maintaining an existing system rather than deploying something that's new how do you keep people engaged and excited and positive about the the ongoing mm. sprint after sprint after sprint yeah, you don't want to get three, four months into a project and you get your developers coming in and it's Groundhog Day. Oh, here we are with the sprint planning again and it's the same old thing every two weeks. So how do you keep them interested? It's a really good question. So what you often see, though, is even though in the ideal world, Scrum team membership should be stable, it's not always like that. People ro rotate in and they rotate off. Every couple of months, the membership is changing. And over the course of seven, eight, nine months up to a year, you could have a brand new team from people rolling in and rolling off. So while not ideal, that does happen. And with the new people coming in, new ideas, it tends to keep it fresh. But in the shorter term, keep the retros interesting. Introduce games. A good Scrum Master will have lots of different games. Keep the retrospectives fun. I find when you try to keep the team 
light humored and enjoying what they do that it doesn't become so much of a chore just coming in and going to work and also keep them engaged more mature teams they can experiment with their solutions and really come up with crazy ideas that might sound to the product owner this is where the dev team is going no this is funky and this is cool and this will work let's try it so let them experiment a little bit and when you're experimenting it's okay to fail You'll learn from your failures and then you'll, you'll take that on into the next sprint. And also with, with more mature teams, let them really get involved with the, the, the discussion with the product owner on how to manage the backlog and how to look at the product roadmap going forward. And that way the dev team feel that they're really taking ownership of the product and they feel pride in it. And it reduces uh, what this question alludes to is boredom. We're coming in, yeah. here we go. It's just another two week sprint with the product owner telling us what to do and the scrum master being a scrum Nazi insisting on certain processes. You really want to hand over that ownership to the team and let them run with it. So what have you seen, Neil? Yeah, good. I, I've um, seen a bit of both. I mean, I've been part of some very long running Scrum projects where we're delivering dynamics over the course of two and three years. My teams have had fairly good, consistent levels of engagement right throughout those long-running projects, partly because of the sustainability of a Scrum project compared to a traditional project where there's a death march towards the end of the development phase and we crush everything in and you know cut the amount of time available for testing and people just want to quit those kind of projects at the end. Scrum you know, doesn't enforce a lot of overtime. We don't work a lot of weekends. So we are able to sustain that pace over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had to maintain existing systems as well as deploy new systems. And I, I read a really good chapter recently in the Scrum Field Guide, which is a, a book by Mitch Lacey. It's got a, a chapter in there about sustained engineering and Scrum. He talks about two different models, one called the dedicated time model, where a proportion of your Scrum team's time is ring-fenced for maintenance of an existing system versus a dedicated team model where there's a couple of team members, maybe even a whole scrum team developed to system maintenance. And he talks about the benefits and drawbacks of both of those approaches. So if you are facing that kind of dilemma, the Scrum Field Guide by Mitch Lacey is a great resource for that. And I'll put links to that in the show notes. Great. Sounds like a good read. It's on the Christmas list now. Yeah. (laughs) Great. So there's another question came in, Neil. How do you document the design shifts from sprint to sprint so that if you need to, you can explain overall scope changes to your project sponsor to get additional budget. Oh, That's a great question. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, a dynamics consultant on the pointy end of a statement yes. of work. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for the question. I think uh, a couple of things there. One, it's really the product owner's responsibility to manage scope. And they're the one affecting the shift in scope from one sprint to another. And I've seen that occasionally with, particularly with a product owner who's immature with dynamics, doesn't really understand the functionality. They might change their mind after they see the completed feature and go, oh, that's not really what I wanted. That's what I asked for. Now that I see it, it's not really what I want. And so we see a a new story to revert to a previous design or or, or the standard feature. So that happens. It tends to stabilize after a while uh, as the product owner becomes more comfortable with Dynamics 365. Where... We do have to document things. I always encourage my teams to maintain a decision log. And on my current project, we've just had to go back over the first couple of sprints because we haven't been maintaining that as rigorously as we should have. But a decision log explains all the design decisions that we made along the way, who was involved, who ratified it. And it's really for the benefit of the people who follow after us. So Mm. we've always got system documentation. We generate that automatically at the end of every sprint. So there's always a good technical design document that tells us what was done, what all the customizations are, but it doesn't tell us why we made those decisions, what the options were, what the trade-offs were, and why we selected the chosen design. So Mm. we're trying to leave behind that kind of justification. 
And uh, that's what I would encourage this person to do in their situation is just document that in a decision log. It could be an Excel spreadsheet. In our case, it's a wiki page and we can just add all our notes into that and leave that behind for the people who follow us. And you might need to use that to justify uh, why you need money or why you need to expand the scope of your project later on. Mm. I like that idea. And also include any documentation in your definition of done. And that means that if documentation is needed, it should be done within the sprint in that story. Yep. Um, so as you go, you're building up that decision log or you're building up that design document with any changes. And then if you use a wiki or Microsoft Word, you can see any changes when you look at the history of it. So really document as you go, as opposed to having a documentation sprint, which is a really bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> really document as you go is, is the way forward. I totally agree with you with scope changes belonging to the product owner and scope changes happen. That's why it's iterative and incremental in Scrum, but also the done increments will testify to the work that's been done. So if you know, the product itself is a testimony to what we've, what we've done in the past few sprints. Hmm. Yeah, good. So following on from the theme of teams and Scrum and in our dynamics projects, I've heard this phrase, I think you've actually used it as well, about the timbers having T-shaped skills. So think of a capital T with a bar across the top rep represents the breadth of skills that a team member has. And then the, the vertical bar of the T represents a specialism that they have, maybe in customizing dynamics or custom development or integration or testing. So how do you balance those teams, Dermot, when you've got a team of specialists and now you seem to become reliant on, on Leon, who's our architect, and we don't really, really want to make too many design decisions unless Leon's involved. And now Leon becomes a bottleneck in those kind of design sessions. Or you've got Elena, who's our developer, and, and she's the one that we want to uh, run past all the custom development jobs and make sure that she's the one customizing the portals uh, because that's where her background lies. And, and now we've got these kind of bottlenecks in our team. How do you handle that in your teams, Dermot? So you're touching on, on two items there, Neil. You've got T-shaped skills, which is on the individual level. And then at the team level, you talk about having a cross-functional team. So I might tackle yep. the cross-functional team first. So with a cross-functional team, what we mean by that is that the, the dev team has all the skills necessary to deliver the done product. So if we use the example of, say, you, have, you could have a team of DBAs, a team of Unix developers or .NET developers, they're all individual teams that may slow up development because you have to go, oh, we need a DBA. We have to go resource somebody from that team. Ideally, within your Scrum team, you would have someone with, with the DBA skill set or the .NET skill set or JavaScript skill set, whatever the skill set it is that you need. And for all those skill sets, if you have them in your Scrum team, then you would be cross-functional. That team would have all the skills necessary to deliver the done increment. So moving on to, to what your real question was, which was T-shaped, and that's more speaking about the individuals. So using Leon, for example, he might be a specialist in, say, click dimensions, but he also does some customization work, say, on JavaScript. So while he may not be an expert on JavaScript, he is the expert on click dimensions. And then your question was, well, what happens when there's a bottleneck? If, if Leon is out sick, we don't have a click dimensions resource. Well, ideally, the other members of your team will have their strong skill set and they'll be learning click dimensions off Leon as the project progresses. It doesn't mean that if you have, for example, one person who knows click dimensions inside out and backwards, that they don't share that knowledge with the team. They, they should indeed share their knowledge. And over time, the other team members are picking up these new skills, even though they may be stronger at, say, JavaScript or some other part of, of uh, at Microsoft Dynamics. 
they're learning the other skill sets as they go. And over time, lots of team members will have the click dimension skill set in this example. So that's my understanding of T-shaped Neil. Do you have a similar understanding? Or? Yeah, so that, that backs up what I'm currently doing on my existing project. We're deploying Unified Service Desk. We've got a member of the team, Arun, who's an awesome Unified Service Desk expert. And we're trying not to rely on him to be the only person who can deliver those stories to Dan. So today he ran a brown bag session to introduce us to USD kind of development concepts. And we'll be diving further and further into that so that the other developers in the team can broaden their skills into unified service test development as well. We could probably go faster in the short term with a rune on his own doing all the stories, but there's just such a, a broad set of epics around unified service mm -hmm. desk that we're trying to deliver in a short period of time. We're going to take the hit and the productivity in the short term and have Arun train people, have some new people take on those unified service desk stories with some of his coaching so that we can then go faster and faster as two, three, and four people, five people become comfortable with USD development. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's what we're trying to do and try not to get hung up on one person in the team being an expert. That, that's actually, you hit on a good point there. That's a, a discussion that always happens with product owners and with project sponsors and going, well, why should my project pay for you to skill up your people? So it's it's the product owner's job and the scrum master also to coach the product owner. Well, this is an investment in the short term. Yes, it's going to cost us because they may slow down a bit to learn this new skill set. But over time, it's rapidly going to increase our velocity because we'll have multiple people able to do the work a lot faster. So you really got to impress upon them that yes, it's an investment, but it will pay off. Yeah, good. Thank you. So there was another question, Neil, and I think this is a perfect one for you. Uh, in distributed teams, how do you avoid conflicting customizations? Uh, so I recently published a blog article actually called The Magic Wand of Customization. And this was a, a technique invented by my current Scrum Master, Carol, who noticed that we were getting into strife because a couple of different, we had two different squads, both wanting to customize the same entity. Typically it's a commonly used form like the contact form or an account form where the two different squads working from the same product blog, both want to perform different customizations on the same thing. And we were tripping over each other. Carol went down to the local store and bought a couple of magic wands and plonked them <laughs> on our desk. And so whenever you're customizing the account form, you hold up the well, magic wand of account form customization and you stick that on your desk everybody else knows that in order to customize that form they need to wait until you're done and they can take the wand from you and now you've got the, the magic wand so that, that's worked really well for us it's a physical token that the teams can distribute and pass around so we know who's doing what and that's really resolved uh, those situations where we were tripping over each other since i published in that blog i've been asked by a couple of other people how would we do that with a remote team so if we're in different locations, how would we virtually hold on to a magic wand? And I don't really have a perfect answer for that. One of the things I thought about doing is if you're using a requirements management system like Azure DevOps or Jira, is maybe to update your avatar and make it a different color or use a, you know, change the, the avatar to be your, your magic wand to show everybody else that you've you've got control of the contact form, for example. But uh, mm -hmm. I haven't thought of anything slicker than that, Dermot. I don't know if you've had that problem before and come up with any innovative challenges, particularly for distributed teams. Mm. So with a, a team that sits together and co-located, like you said, it, it's more straightforward. With distributed teams, it's definitely harder. But when that happens, especially with a, an app like Microsoft Dynamics, and there's lots of customizations like that that multiple people could be working on, this is what the daily stand-up is for. This is what the huddle is for. Hey, what are we working on today to move toward the goal? 
And while I don't need to know the intricacies of everything you're working on, Neil, I should have a good idea of what user story you're working on and what that user story is going to touch. So really, a lot of communication is very important here. And that's like a really good scrum team. They're talking all the time. They're back and forth. Lots of chatter. Yep. So I really encourage a lot of communication and a lot of talking. And, you know, we have the technology for that. We have Skype. We have WhatsApp. We have Jira. You can tag people in Jira. Just put their name on it and they'll get the message straight away. Hey, everybody, I'm checking out this piece of code. Everybody gets it. Everybody knows. Yeah, uh, that's, So we do um, have the technology. That's a good idea. We, we use Microsoft Teams at the moment. We could probably have a, a channel in there for the account form. And I could quickly, you know, hey, I'm, I'm checking out the account form. I'll let you know when I'm done. And I'll update it that way. Thankfully, we are co-located, so we can just do it verbally and use the magic wand. That's worked really well. Great. Thanks, thanks, Dermot. Cool. How do you, talking about remote teams, how do you work as a, as a cohesive team when just one or two developers are remote? I've done it with entirely remote teams in California when we didn't want to drive through the traffic. So we were all mm-hmm. working in different parts of Southern California remotely. And we used some of that technology. And it, it worked okay because none of us were physically co-located together. But when most of the team are co-located and just one or two team members are remote, that can feel very isolating when it's hard to participate in those meetings. Everybody else mm-hmm. is in the room and you're you're not. Have you had that situation? Yeah, it's difficult because ideally in Scrum, you do want everyone co-located. I mean, that's to me, that's the essence of it is that we're, we're together, we're a team, we hang out together, we have each other's back, we're talking every day. Co-locating is fantastic. But again, in the real world, it doesn't happen. You have people who, who live in different states, in different countries sometimes. So again, we got to go back to the to the technology that we have. You know, we've got Skype, we've got telephone, uh, video Skype, WhatsApp groups. Two of the teams I work with at the moment have a, a WhatsApp group. And uh, they put constantly messaging on that. We use Yammer. And then on Jira, you can tag people and Confluence also. So there's lots of tools we can use to do that. It still won't overcome the gap in teamwork because it works better when people are co-located but it's the next best thing and also i'd recommend if people are living interstate or living uh, overseas once in a while fly them in so they can meet the team and you know get fly them in for a week it okay it might cost you a little bit but you know it's worth the investment they get to meet and greet the team in person you get to go to lunch you get to hang out and when they go back to wherever they are whatever country they're in or whatever state they're in that bond of, hey, my team up in Brisbane and I'm living in Sydney, I can now put a face to their name or a personality to the face. It really, really works when you fly people in like that. What I, about I, you, Neil? Have you I completely agree. So that, that if there is a productivity gap between a remote team and a co-located team, it's much, much smaller when that team has met. Like you said, shared a meal together, built up some in-person trust so that when they are working remotely again, they know exactly who they are and, and what they're like to work with. Absolutely. So definitely a practice I would encourage either during the launch of a, of a project or when you're doing one of those quarterly kind of um, release playing sessions, bring in your mm-hmm. remote team workers. It's worth that expense because surely there's some cost saving for working remotely in the first place. That's why you've arranged it that way. So exactly. make that investment and bring them in once in a while. So Neil, have you practiced Scrum with small teams or very large teams? And by small, I mean two or three people and large greater than nine. Um, <laughs> I don't think I know, you're gonna... I know one project you definitely yeah, have. <laughs> I, I don't think you're going to like the answer to either either of these questions. But uh, yes, I have. I've been the only person on a Scrum project. What? How does that work? <laughs> well, we had the product owner. I sat across from Peter. He was the product owner at a, at a hospital. He worked in the medical physics department, and I was building an asset management system to track all the hospital's medical equipment. And I 
configured most of the system for the couple of months. It was just me and Peter. And we had a daily stand-up every day. And we uh, I built the system in response to his requirements. And then every, I think we were running a weekly sprint. So every week we'd gather together all his other stakeholders. So his, his manager and a couple of the other engineers. And I'd demonstrate the features and we'd get some feedback. He'd um, write the user stories in the product backlog and off I'd go again. Eventually we brought in Greg, who's an awesome Dynamics developer. He did a lot of the work to then extend the system into parts that I couldn't automate with just my limited uh, configuration skills. And I took care of the data migration while Greg was busy doing the custom development. And so we doubled the size of the Scrum team from one to two people. And that worked okay. Really, Scrum says that that probably shouldn't work. But it only mm -hmm. says that because it's unlikely that you'll have all the skills needed to take an idea into production. If you do have all the ideas, if you've got, in my case, you know, not a not a very broad set of skills, but broad enough to get that job done, most of it, and mm -hmm. it worked okay. I've also had very large teams of of you know ten and even twelve or more people, and that was really difficult in the American Homes for Rent project in California. I definitely should have split up the teams. We had far too big a Scrum team, and in the university project you and I worked on together in Sydney, we mm -hmm. eventually did, and it was magic once we set those two teams free they were much better on their own and uh, today we've got 12 people in our odyssey team and they are working in two different squads we have shared some shared ceremonies the uh, sprint planning and review and retrospective are done together but the work is done and the design and, and the development and the daily stand-ups are done separately as two different squads and that's working out really mm. well too right wow you one person team. It's amazing. It's, um, I knew you'd tut at me for that. Well, it's, it's to be fair, the, the Scrum Guide says like three people or less is, is too small because it decreases interaction and results in smaller productivity gains. But what I'm really learning on my journey with Agile is that the Scrum Guide is a framework. And if you you tweak that and it works for you, then that's great. I wouldn't recommend it myself, no. <laughs> less than three people. Because say, for example, if you've got two people and one person is out sick, that's 50% of your productivity is gone. So it's very hard to do uh, velocity and capacity planning. It's very hard to estimate your epics and your product roadmap way out into the future with that key person dependency. So yeah, really, I wouldn't recommend less than three people. With the big teams, the project we worked on at the university, Neil, I think at one stage we had 18 people in a team before wow. the, really the client eventually. Yeah, it was getting very unwieldy. Uh, you do reach the, the law of diminishing returns that it, Scrum isn't the, the sort of thing where if you throw more people at it, the productivity goes up. That's that's not how it works. And we were finding that the more people on the project was slowing us down. There was uh, too much coordination was needed, too much complexity. And trying to, to inspect and adapt, there was too many voices at the table. So really then when you split that project into two teams, it worked way, way better. So yeah, more than nine, it, it becomes very unwieldy. But I have seen it done. I've seen it work with 12. You can get away with it. But um, anything over that, really, you're, you're going to struggle. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's a false economy to think that a team that big can get a lot of work done. You really need to find a way to split it up so that you're in that mm. sweet spot of six or seven people. Um, the right. Scrum Master and the Product Owner are outside of that number. I know you and I have d debated before whether business analysts who aren't logging in and customizing mm -hmm. Dynamics, whether they're part of the product owner group or whether they're part of the development yeah. team, but we'll, we'll not rehash that conversation again. Yeah, <laughs> we've covered that twice in podcasts I think we already. Have. I think. <laughs> yeah. So thinking about splitting larger 
teams up. There's kind of two ways to do it. Both, you know, I've heard of component teams and feature teams. So a component team is maybe a team that looks after the user interface, for example, and mm -hmm. uh, maybe they look after all the workflows or a feature team. And somebody says, oh, this team's going to look after, in our case, it was, you know, marketing and recruitment or student administration and mm -hmm. all the features that the product owner needs in that area. So thinking about those two different ways to organize your teams, have you found a clear winner or other you know, benefits and drawbacks to both of those ways of organizing multiple teams in a scaled group? Yeah, I'm more a fan of feature teams over component teams. So with component teams, for example, you may have a, a team that looks after the databases or looks after the UX design, or you may have a team of testers. With the feature teams, then you could have one uh, database person, one UX person, one tester, a few devs and a BA. And there, then the feature team is developing a feature that can be released to production after your two weeks of a sprint. And then the user can actually use it. it it's going live. Find with component teams that if they're doing just one, working on one part of the component, you can't always release that part of the, of the, of the product uh, because it needs to interact with other parts of the product. So for me, I'm a, a fan of feature teams over component teams. Yeah, me too. The only time I've seen component teams work is when that team is purely responsible for systems integration work and they're not actually building any application features that are used by our end users, but they're simply building APIs or services mm. that are consumed by other feature teams. That seems to work okay. Mm. Great. Um, so any other questions there, Neil? Yeah, we, we've, um, we've got a situation at the moment. We're, we're a pretty self-sufficient team in terms of our dynamics uh, development, but you know we can't have everybody in there. So there's, you know, there's a firewall person in the infrastructure team, or there's an Office 365 global administrator that we need to rely on to provision a user and, and do those kind of things where my team doesn't have permissions. There's a release and change manager in a different part of the IT organization who'll do the release into production for us. How do you manage dependencies and coordination with people who are outside of your core scrum team who you need to rely on to get your work into production? Mm, it, it's a great question, Neil, and it's it's a challenge we have at the moment in my current workplace. I work for a large bank here in Sydney, and if you can imagine, we need to our Scrum teams need to interact with the network team or the infrastructure team, or to configure a mailbox or to blast through a firewall. There's lots of specialist teams throughout the bank. Yep. So even though we're running Scrum on the projects we're working on, that doesn't mean that they're running in Scrum. They're <laughs> yeah. running waterfall or doing whatever suits them best and who are we to dictate to them hey we're running scrum so you got to get this into our two-week time frame of the sprint you know they're going to tell us to get lost which quite frequently happens <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so how me. do we you know so how do we get around that and it's it's a real challenge one tactic that we've used to to varying degrees of success is in our refinement sessions so we always try to have our product backlog refined about one to two sprints in advance. The sweet spot is about yep. one and a half sprints of stories already refined, ready to go, ready to be picked up by a sprint team. So we call out in our refinement sessions, hey, do we have any dependencies on an external team? So let's say we need a network team to do a piece of work before we can start this particular story. We will flag that in the refinement session, and then we will create a chore or another story, which is to engage that network team and liaise with them to get all their ducks in a row and when can they do this piece of work for us. And then we will add that to the as a condition of the original story. 
So we can only start that original story and bring it into the, a sprint, a future sprint, when the chore has been met. So when we've lined up the networks team and they're ready and they've got their ducks in a row, they're going to be ready on this date, 1st of December, then we can pull our original story into the sprint that covers that timeline. It's working to a point because sometimes the external teams don't respect what they've agreed to. They've got pro other priorities that interrupt it. But these are things that are outside of our control yep. and we're doing best efforts to get around it. And in a lot of cases, it does work. Um, the other teams understand fully to go, yeah, you need me in three weeks to do a piece of networking work for you. We'll be available on that date. Tell us what you need. We tell them what they need well in advance. They arrange their resources and come the time, they're ready, they're good to go. So that's one way we use to get around it with varying degrees of success. What have you used yourself, Neil? Yeah, a very similar approach. Um, I don't always have the luxury of, of knowing a sprint and a half in advance that I, I need some infrastructure or I need a specific you know business resource. If I can get that, that's fantastic. What we do have the luxury of in our Jupiter program today is a dedicated um, environments team. There's two of them who have been loaned to us by the infrastructure team for the period of the program for a couple of years, and they do all the coordination for us. So they understand how all those other teams work, whether they're working in Kanban, whether they're working on Waterfall, whether they're working in their own Scrum kids, mm. and how best to schedule our work with them, prioritize our work with them, escalate it, so that most of that those requests get handled on time for us. And we, we try and behave by giving them as much notice as we can whenever it's a you know reasonable request, expected request. And they, in turn, help us out tremendously when it comes to an emergency request. You know, we're, we're blocked. We've got a critical story. Business is expecting it this sprint. And we can't get the thing to work unless you can unblock this firewall policy. Please can you help mm -hmm. us out with a change request this evening. And that's, in fact, there's one went through last night at pretty short notice so that's working really well for us is to have within our program team a couple of dedicated individuals from the infrastructure group to handle all that stuff for us so if you have that luxury in a larger program then yeah go for it we're mm. really fortunate great and do you track that work then do you like do you just send them an email and go hey please can you set this up or do you track it on your board as a chore yeah we track it on our board as a chore and i, I would assign it to one of the guys in the infrastructure team Brilliant. Yeah, I like that method a lot. Working yeah. well for us. And they try and attend our stand-ups. Not every day, but some days then we have Scrum of Scrums where uh, I, I flag it SOS. It's a Scrum of Scrums label in Jira. And that means it's got to get discussed at Scrum of Scrums. The infrastructure guys are there. The data migration, the systems integration teams, we're all there talking about those things that were escalated during the course of the sprint so we can get them bashed out and make sure that somebody's being held accountable. Yeah, we, we also use that method. We may not invite all the people from the, the networks teams and the firewall teams, but what we do have is people in the Scrum of Scrums who have the contacts, who, who their job is to liaise with these external teams. Yeah. So we use something similar as well. If the dev team member, hey, yeah, I need a networks resource, but I don't even know where to begin, how to get a network resource, we have a pool of people who can help them out. Okay, Neil, so we have another question here. Uh, can a Dynamics team work with multiple product owners on a Scrum project? Oh, so <laughs> there's, I guess there's a couple of different ways to think about that. If, if you've got multiple Scrum teams, like we talked about splitting up our team of 18 into two different teams, and we, we could then work with a small hierarchy of product owners. I've seen that happen. Each feature team has a feature product owner that reports to a chief product owner getting trying not to veer off into product owner committee 
land mm. was a swamp filled with <laughs> crocodiles. Yes. But yes, in that situation, maybe a multiple product owners could work. But yeah, I've seen a couple of times where we're stuck with a, a couple of people who can't agree which one of them is the product owner. Uh, and that's, that's fraught with danger as well. What about you? Yeah. So my way of tackling that is that which the feature teams, like you said, when you have multiple feature teams, that when you look at large scale scrum less, which I mentioned earlier on, that, that says that yes, you can have area product owners right. that all report up into a chief product owner, but the buck stops with the chief product owner. So the the bickering that you said, hey, who's the product owner here? That line of demarcation is very clear that the area product owners are representatives of the product owner. There can only be one. <laughs> yeah. So while they're they're working with the feature teams, they will then have meetings with the chief product owner to map the product roadmap and look at what we want to achieve over the next sprint or look at goals and upcoming work and deal with customers. They can help share the load. They're in in the less framework, they're known as area product owners, right. but there is only one product owner. Yeah, so uh, it's maybe something, bickering. sorry, it's maybe yeah, something to consider if, if you're a reasonably mature agile organization, kicking off a new program at that kind of scale. But if you're new to Scrum and you're a Dynamics customer or you're a Microsoft customer implementing Dynamics for the first time, then it's probably not the best approach to go for something that big without some mm. decent coaching and, and experience brought onto the team to help you through it. Exactly. The accountability lies with that product owner. So if you have multiple people claiming that hat, they may also absolve that responsibility. Oh, but I thought you were looking after it. So really you need one person. Great. Well, thanks, Dermot. That's been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed some of your insights into what I'm doing. And hopefully our audience has enjoyed some of your perspectives as well. Uh, hopefully we can get together in another couple of weeks and answer some more listener questions or pick up another topic. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Neil. Great talking to you as, as always. And please keep the questions coming. We, we love getting them and love tackling them. Yeah. So Dermot, if people wanted to connect with you and reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? LinkedIn. So it's Dermot Ryan two is my handle. I think the preamble is linkedin.com slash I can't remember Neil. Do you remember what it is? LinkedIn.com slash I N slash Dermot Ryan two. That's that it. Of it. Two. Yep, that's it. Perfect. And you can reach me at Neil Benson is my LinkedIn handle. So it's LinkedIn.com slash I N slash Neil Benson. Look forward to catching up with you there. Thanks everybody. Thanks, Dermot. Catch you next time. Thanks a lot. See you. Bye. Our mission is to have every Microsoft Dynamics 365 project succeed using Scrum. If you'd like to learn more about Scrum and become a certified professional Scrum Master, visit crm.audio slash Scrum Dynamics to get discounted access to the introduction to Scrum for Microsoft Dynamics 365 course. The course features videos, worksheets, quizzes, and a practice assessment for the professional Scrum Master certification exam. It covers the theory of Scrum, its events, roles, and deliverables, as well as lessons learned through Scrum for Dynamics CRM case study projects. CRM Audio podcast listeners can get discounted access by visiting crm.audio slash scrumdynamics.